Thank you all. For me, Thanksgiving is a time of homegoing, homecoming. I cannot help but remember the days of my boyhood before I left my father's house, how we made an annual pilgrimage. I doubt if I ever missed a Thanksgiving going to visit both my maternal and paternal grandparents. On my father's side, Papa Woods and Mama Woods were people of the most modest means. They didn't have much, according to the world's standards. But I never remember seeing anyone come for a visit to their home, including me and my family, leaving either empty-handed or empty-hearted. I like to believe it's because of their faith in Christ. Both of them professed faith in Jesus, and this is one of the ways in which they showed their Christ-likeness. Jesus is the ultimate host. He's the one whose presence ensures that we, when we come into that presence, are people who are treated with the most gracious expressions of provision, both physical and spiritual. Have you ever stopped to consider that we gather in this place regularly on what the Bible calls the Lord's Day, And among the reasons that we carry on the tradition that was set forth in the fifth commandment, that we shall remember, fourth commandment, excuse me, we shall remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. When you begin to look at the explanation of what that was all about for Israel, it has relevance to us as the body of Christ. Our Father beckons us to come together as a family every week. To worship Him by all means, but also to be hosted by Jesus. After all, this is His church. And so today, we are invited again to turn in our Bibles, this time to the book of John, chapter 6, where we see how Jesus was one when hosting others, never let them leave empty-handed or empty-hearted. So we're going to delve into this Scripture right away. I'm not going to read the entire passage and then come back and look at it in more detail. We're just going to look at it in detail as we go through the passage. And the first section has to do with the trip that Jesus took. Look at verse 6. After these things, let's pause just a moment. That's referring to what is recorded in the Gospel of John chapter 5. Remember the setting. We saw this last week. Jesus and His disciples were in Jerusalem. And it was there that Jesus established His authority. It was His way of saying, I am God. He was accused by His detractors as being one who described Himself as being equal with God. And that infuriated them because they saw that as blasphemy. But they just didn't understand who He was. He was not blaspheming. He was simply declaring who He was. Jesus is God. He is fully God and fully man. But nevertheless, He is God on an equal plane with God the Father, as is the Holy Spirit God on equal plane with Jesus the Son and the Father. 
So we come to this section which sets itself in the region of Galilee. Jesus goes in a way from the sublime to the ridiculous when he goes to Galilee. Galilee was the place that was inhabited with Jewish hillbillies, we might say. These people could be distinguished by their accent and their dialect. They were people that were not refined in most cases. They were country folks. And so Jesus goes there, and in going there, He does some marvelous things, one of which we're considering in this passage today. He takes the trip, and He knew why He was going there. The text goes on to say in verse 1, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. A brief reminder of the size of this lake of water. It was a fresh water body, and it was 13 miles from the top to where it emptied into the Jordan River and flowed southward. Then it was seven miles across at its widest place from west to east. On the northwest corner, Jesus had established his headquarters at a fishing village known as Capernaum. And then in this particular instance, he and his disciples were traveling by boat from Capernaum to the eastern, northeastern town of Bethsaida. Now, Bethsaida was a place from which some of the disciples of Jesus came. It was their hometown. And here we see them traveling by boat across the Sea of Galilee at a very leisurely pace, I would imagine. They're in no hurry to get there. They're enjoying the ride. And Jesus enjoyed leisure time. The reason we know that, there's a passage in John that we looked at earlier in the third chapter where the Scripture says, Jesus was in a place near Salim and it was there that He was spending time with His apostles. He was investing Himself in them. Do you know Jesus loves to spend time with you and with me? It's hard to imagine. But if you know Christ, you are His disciple. And He wants that time for you and for me. That's why He says, Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him. Some of you like your privacy. And some of you have the habit of closing your door. And even though there's not a do not disturb sign on the outside, the members of your household know what that signifies. I want some me time, right? Well, Jesus Christ comes every day to you and to me. And He knocks on our door. And He says, open up. I want to come in. And I want to dine with you and you with me. That's a way of His saying, I want some time of intimacy with you. And so Jesus wanted that time with His apostles as He was traveling by boat along the shore of the north of the Sea of Galilee. And look at verse 2. He was not unaccompanied. He and His disciples were not unaccompanied. A great multitude was following Him because they were seeing the signs which He was performing on those who were sick. Now, let me pause a moment and refresh your memory as to what the concept of sign is. It's a special word 
among many special words in the Bible. But in the book of John, it's a key word. Because Jesus is recorded as having performed seven signs. And the Bible says in the book of John that he performed many more if he were to take time, that is the gospel writer of John, were to take time to describe all of them. All the libraries in the world could not hold them. So he picks seven, and each one of these signs is designed to point to the deity of Jesus Christ. Jesus is, in fact, human through and through. He was also and remains God. He always has been. He always will be. And these signs point to Him. A sign is something which points to something greater than itself. Some of you took a trip this weekend. It's holiday and you've gotten back having driven someplace either eastward or northward, perhaps southward or westward. And undoubtedly, when you hit the road, there was some sign telling you how far your destination was. And that sign was something much smaller than the real thing. And these signs which Jesus performed were signposts pointing us to Him as the way, the truth, and the life. Pointing to Him as the bread of life, the door, the good shepherd who lays down His life for the sheep, the resurrection and the life, the light of the world, the true vine. Jesus is all of these things and more. And so when we think about signs, that's what we think of. The signs in question that drew this great multitude were signs where Jesus performed miracles and healing. In the last chapter, we encountered a man who for 38 years had been an invalid. Every day, apparently, perhaps with the exception of the Sabbath, he was taken along with another great multitude, John writes, to a pool called Bethesda in hopes that when the angel of the Lord came and stirred the waters, he would be the first in the water because the first in the water got healed. People had seen these things happen. In Jerusalem and in Galilee, Jesus was not discriminate. He was indiscriminate in his healing people. Wherever he went, he healed people. And these people had seen it. I'm sure that the people who were adults were perhaps bringing their children because they had heard that Jesus had a fondness for children. We know in the Scriptures there was a synagogue ruler by the name of Jairus. Jairus' little girl, about 12 years of age, was on her deathbed. And he came as he sought Jesus. He begged Jesus to heal her. Jesus came with him to Jairus' home and he resuscitated a young lady who had died. We encounter a man later in the life of Jesus at the foot of the Mount of Transfiguration whose son is demon-possessed. And Jesus, at the request of the Father, casts out the demon. Certainly there were parents who were bringing their ill children in hopes that Jesus would heal them. Maybe a sick spouse, maybe a friend, maybe a parent. Jesus had been performing these signs and the people were very interested in enlisting His healing powers for those whom they love, if not for themselves. 
Verse 3 speaks of the destination. Once Jesus got to that side of the lake, Jesus went up on the mountain, and there He sat with His disciples. Now, I don't know about you, but when I'm thinking about a vacation, if I have my druthers, I'm going to go to the mountains. I love the ocean. I do. I love the Gulf of Mexico. I spent some of my fondest memories on the Gulf of Mexico. I've been to the Atlantic and the Pacific. I prefer the Gulf because of its beauty and its warmth. But nevertheless, if I had to make a choice, I would choose a mountain. Now, Jesus loved the Sea of Galilee. We see Him all the time. In fact, He picked as His headquarters Capernaum. It was a place that was accessible, and it was a great place for Him to have as His headquarters for His ministry. It was always the place He came back to. In fact, in the book of Mark, chapter 2, it speaks of Jesus coming home when He came to Capernaum. It was a fond place in the mind of Christ. But have you ever noticed in Scripture, not just in the life of Christ, but in Scripture, how often great events occur on mountains? Have you ever noticed that? Where did the Ark of Noah find its resting place? On Mount Ararat, correct? Pretty significant event. What about Abraham when he was told by God to take his son, his only son Isaac, to Mount Moriah and there sacrifice him? Talk about courage. Talk about self-sacrifice. Talk about an understanding of yieldedness to the Lord in the aged Abraham takes the trek several miles and takes his son there. And then the miracle occurs when he's raising the knife to take the life and shed the blood of his only son Isaac. The angel Lord stays his hand and he hears the bleating of a ram in the thicket. And God has provided something there. This is awesome to think about when we think about our Lord being our provider. He is indeed. What about Mount Sinai? where Moses spent 40 days and 40 nights, and there he communed with God. He saw the form of God. He heard the voice of God. And there he received the Ten Commandments, as we describe them, the law, which set the standard for life among the people of God. And to this day, still has relevance to our lives. Or to Mount Nebo, where Moses gets a view of the Promised Land, Forbidden to go into the promised land because he had disobeyed the father. And the father said, okay, you're not going in. I'll let you get a peek at it. And then he died there. And Michael the archangel came and buried him there. We don't know where his body rests, but we can assume safely it's on Mount Nebo. And what about Jesus at the Mount of Transfiguration? I've already alluded to it. What happened when he came down was really important for the father of the demonized child, but what happened on that Mount of Transfiguration was His really revealing Himself in His fullness of deity. And His garments shone brighter than any launderer could ever show. And the reason for that is His real being was shining through, even through the clothes which He wore. He lit them up. And certainly... Jesus loved mountains. He gave what is known as the Sermon on the Mount. Really, to be honest, it was the Sermon on the Hill. He didn't use the word mount. He used the word hill there. And through tradition, it's been translated in most cases as the mount. And what is He doing here? 
The same thing he was doing when he gave the Sermon on the Mount. He's sitting down. This was Jesus' normal posture when he taught. There's one instance where he stood up at the Feast of Tabernacles and declared, we'll see that in the seventh chapter of John, a great message. We'll save that for later. But here he's teaching his disciples, I believe. We don't know for sure, but he's sitting and he's teaching them. And all of a sudden, he lifts his eyes, we're going to see that in a moment, and see something. Verse 4 says, Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. I almost skipped this and I would have been wrong. I would have cheated you out of a very important thought. Here's the thought. The Passover was the feast of the Jews. Were it not for the Passover, there would be no other feasts. It's the first feast that was required. It was required of every male Jew, 20 years of age and older, to come to Jerusalem. That was the law. And it symbolized something so significant. It symbolized liberation from slavery. It symbolized deliverance from bondage. It symbolized relief and hope for a people who labored under great pressure and had no hope. And Jesus, the Bible says, is our Passover. He is our liberator. He is the one who embodies hope. He's the one who delivers hope to us. Somebody here this morning is pretty well out of hope. And you came here with the desire, maybe a last-ditch effort, to find some hope, some reason for continuing. Well, you came to hear that Jesus Christ is your Passover. He is your hope. He is your deliverer. Christ took a trip. Verses 1 through 4. Now Christ tests Philip. This is in verses 5 through 9. Therefore Jesus, lifting up his eyes and seeing this great multitude coming to him, said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread that these may eat? Now the question would be, why Philip? Why not Peter or James or John? Why Philip? The reason for that is we are told in the first chapter of John that Philip came from Bethsaida. That was his turf. And if you know anything about Middle Eastern people, we have people in this room who are of Middle Eastern descent. And of all people in the world, there is none who are better at hosting than these Middle Eastern people. You can be an enemy of a Bedouin, and if you are in flight from someone who is seeking your life, and you can get inside the Bedouin tent, then you have the protection of that would-be enemy Bedouin, and you also have the provision. And what we know is that Jesus Christ is better than any Bedouin ever would be. And Jesus is our refuge. Jesus is our fortress. Jesus is our stronghold. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into Him and are safe. So, Jesus, being the hospitable person He is, and knowing Philip, knowing that Philip was a person who undoubtedly was hospitable, He goes to Him. And then what does Philip say? 
Where are we to buy bread that these may eat? Now, that was what Jesus said to Philip. And look, look what it goes on to say that Philip said in response. And this Jesus was saying to test him, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. Jesus had a plan. We're going to get back to that in just a moment. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them for everyone to receive a little. Philip was a practical man, and he knew the size of the crowd. If you'll look down at the last part of verse 10, we are led in on the number of people involved. The men sat down in number about 5,000. In Matthew's Gospel, in describing this setting, this event, he says 5,000 men in addition to the women and the children. I mean, this was a gang of people. And being the practical person that he was, maybe he knew there were only 200 denarii, and a denarius represented the equivalent of one day's work. So you do the math if you're a a person who is a a 40-hour-a-week person. And these people worked probably 60 hours a week, easily maybe 72. They worked from daylight to dark and then some in many cases. They had the Sabbath day and they longed for that day so they could be refreshed. But just do the math. That's a lot of money, right? 320 hours... That's a lot of that's a lot of dollars, but that's a lot of dollars for a forty week hour week, and then multiply that over five thousand. And he said, all we would have is just to give them a little, Lord, just a little. So Philip failed the test, but Andrew didn't. Verse eight says, and one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, "There is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are these for so many people?" Andrew passed it, but probably by the skin of his teeth, because he was still doubting a bit as to what could come of these five barley loaves and these two fish. Surely not much. Maybe if people shared generously, the result would be that maybe three or four or five people could eat off of that. Not a whole lot of people. But Andrew, we see here, is doing what we saw him do earlier in the first chapter of John, When he met Christ, his first impulse was to find his brother, Simon Peter, and bring him to Christ. Andrew is always seemingly bringing people to Jesus. Would that we were all like Andrew. It would be awesome, wouldn't it? Always looking for someone to bring to the Lord. In this case, he brings this lad with his food. And this little lad is not given much attention here. I don't think Andrew would have strong-armed him, do you? He could have. He's just a child. But I'm sure the little boy was glad to give what he gave to Jesus. And this is a picture of our faith as it ought to be. A faith that is childlike, not childish, but childlike. Children don't have the problem of pride which we wrestle with as adults. And therefore, they can humble themselves. It's just built into their nature. I know children are strong-willed. I know that. I've had two children. I have grandchildren now. But generally speaking, they have a believing heart when it comes to Jesus. And they want to trust Christ. It's built into them because God's put eternity in the hearts of all men. And it begins at childhood. Well, let's move on now and look at Jesus executing the plan that he had. He had a plan in mind. And here's something for us to 
Bear in mind, remember earlier when I mentioned that the name that God gives Himself in conjunction with Abraham taking Isaac to the place of sacrifice and God's providing a sacrifice so that He would not have to take the life of His Son? Well, that word Jehovah-Jireh is typically translated, God is our provider, the Lord is our provider. But actually, literally, it is He is the God who sees. Now remember... Jesus is fully man, but He's also fully God. He saw the need before it was presented to the apostles. He knew the need. He had a plan. And let's recall what we saw in the fifth chapter also of John, where Jesus says in the 30th verse, I take no initiative on my own. And I'm paraphrasing here. He says, what I do, I do in response to what I hear the Father saying and see the Father doing. The Father had already shown him what was going to happen in that particular setting, and he was going to fulfill what the Father had told him to do, because, as he also says in John 5.30, I've come to do the will of my Father. And the will of the Father was to take care of this great multitude in their physical lives. The Lord is interested in your physical life as well as your spiritual life. Your spiritual life is primary, but never underestimate your body either. Because do you not know, the Bible says, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own. We're to glorify God in our body and so fulfill our intended purpose. Let's look at verse 10. Jesus says, Have the people sit down. Now, this seems a little strange, but it makes perfectly good sense. You've got 5,000 men plus a lot of women and children. And what do you do? What does Jesus say? Organize them. And the other gospel writers give us more information about just exactly how they were organized. And they were put into groups. And the Bible says that Jesus distributed to them what they needed. Before he did that, however, the Bible says... He thanked God. Now, here is the source. Important to understand. Here is the source of this great sign or miracle. He thanked the Lord. He knew where this miracle had to come from. It had to come from God. It was not about Jesus' ingenuity. It was about His submission to the Father thanking the Father, and the Father doing His work through Him. And then He distributes it. Do you think Jesus passed out food to the, let's just say conservatively, 8,000 people there? That Do you think He personally passed out the food? I don't think so. In fact, we know differently when we look once again at the other Gospel writers. He gave it to His apostles to distribute it. And I wonder, there's no way of knowing this, but I wonder as the disciples went from group to group and they were witnessing this miracle themselves. Now, with 5,000 people, the people at the back probably would not know what was going on in terms of the multiplication of the food. Maybe word traveled rapidly as the people up front were witnesses, front row witnesses of what was going on. But nevertheless, I've wondered when these Apostles were distributing the food, whether they took a nibble here and there. Because they were hungry too, right? We don't know if that were the case. 
But at the end of the day, when they finished doing their task, then they were hungry for sure, and the Lord provided for them as well. Let's read a little further here. In the middle of verse 10, Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number about 5,000. Jesus therefore took the loaves, and having given thanks, he distributed to those who were seated, likewise also of the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they were filled, he said to his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. And they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves which were left over by those who had eaten. So, does the number twelve resonate with you in this context? How many apostles were there? Twelve. And they could have been, internally at least, grousing a little bit, saying, Hey, we're feeding all these people, and we're the guys that are really close to Jesus. Why hasn't He fed us? And then Jesus goes overboard with them, doesn't He? He gives them a whole basket full. We don't know exactly how large the basket is. All kinds of suggestions have been made. But be sure it was plenty and some to spare for them. Now, let's look at the last movement after Jesus has executed His plan, which He had been given by the Father in advance. Then the last movement in this text is Jesus retreated once more to the mountain. Look at verse 14. When therefore the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, This is of truth the prophet who is to come into the world. We read about this prophesied prophet in Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 18. He'd be just like Moses. He would speak the word of God with authority. And his words mattered because they weren't his own words. They were the words which God had given him on Mount Sinai. And remember that Jesus had this kind of authority in his teaching. Because every time he teached, taught rather, the people would say about him, this man teaches as one with authority. And they were astonished at his teaching. Because it was not something that he did independently. He did it independence upon the Lord. And the Holy Spirit, as we saw last week, was witnessing to the people through Christ as He taught the truth. So, Jesus was the fulfillment of the passage that we looked at in Deuteronomy 18. Now, let's look at verse 15. Jesus, therefore, perceiving that they were intending to come and take Him by force to make Him king, withdrew again to the mountain by Himself alone. The two words translated himself alone stand at the head of the sentence, at the beginning of the sentence. And whenever someone writing or speaking in the languages of the New Testament puts a word or words at the front of a sentence, even though it may be out of order from our viewpoint as English speakers, it is a sign that that's what's being emphasized. Himself alone, he went away. In a sense, he fled the crowd. And he's alone. This is not the first, nor will it be the last time we witness Jesus seeking solitude. He had just been used to perform an incredible miracle. Changing these five loaves and two fishes into enough food to feed 8,000 people, conservatively speaking, and then have 12 baskets full left over. That's a mighty miracle, isn't it? 
Of course it is. But he needed to be alone. Jesus is anti-successive. And what I mean by that is, he's not into success as we measure success. Success would have been to go ahead and let this massive number of people to crown him king. That's success. But instead of doing that, what does he do? He retreats. Because it's not Jesus' nature to seek the limelight. Even though he's God, but he gives us a great example. Let me give you quickly some lessons learned in this text. Christ tests his followers. And there's a reason. It's not for his knowledge. He understands. He knew what Philip was going to say before he said it. He knew Philip was going to fail the test. But he gives us tests in order to clarify for us how far along we are spiritually. Isn't that what tests are given for in school? To measure how much you've learned? And this is the test that we are called to. And it's humbling to fail the test. Have any of you ever failed a test? It is the pits. At least it was for me. Another thing we learn from this is little becomes great in Christ's hands. This little lad gave five loaves and two fish. He gave all of his lunch or his food, whatever it would be described as, to Jesus. And that little bit became a great amount. So you may say, I don't have anything to give. I don't have any special gifts. Do you have yourself to give to the Lord? Don't despise the day of small things, the Bible says. Remember that little becomes great in Christ's hands. Here's the third thing. Jesus cares for the physical as well as the spiritual. That's been established. He cares immensely about the spiritual. And here's what we need to understand. When we see a brother or sister in need for clothing or for food, what we are to do is to respond as if we were responding to Jesus Himself. In fact, we are. Christ in that person. Here's the fourth lesson. Christ satisfies fully. Where do I get that? Look at the last line of verse 11. Likewise, also of the fish, as much as they wanted. They were wanting and they wanted. They got all they could eat. Some of these people were very poor. They had never had a banquet like Jesus spread for them. A feast. And they received it from the Lord Jesus. And they were fully satisfied. The only person who can fully satisfy me or you is the person of Jesus Christ. And we are so worldly as Christians sometimes. We have to be satisfied with being entertained or having more things. And when we have Christ, we have more than we will ever need. And He will provide for your needs, by the way. Seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. And what is the promise of God? All these necessities of life will be given to you. I can attest to that, and most of you can attest to that truth. Truly. Here's the fifth thing. Jesus doesn't waste anything. He didn't waste the leftovers. Jesus doesn't waste anything. Nor should we. I'm talking about the necessities of life. Be careful in What you do with food that's still perfectly good, you throw it away many times because nobody in the house will eat it. We'll make them eat it, okay? (laughs) 
Without knowing it, my mother made me eat the leftovers. And to this day, I love leftovers. You know the old saying, leftovers are better than the first time through, right? And there's truth to that. But don't waste what Christ has given you. Use what He gives you. Enjoy it. We've been given everything richly to enjoy. So you don't have to be self-denying to a fault. Yesterday I went to Pyology. Have any of you been there? And I walked in. It was 3.30. I hadn't eaten really all day. I ate a few mixed nuts earlier in the day. They were delicious, but it had been about six hours or so since I ate them. And I go in. I knew I don't have time to eat before church unless I get it there. I come in and I order this pie, pizza pie to go. And I sit down and I finished half of it. I just... Man, I was ravenous. I got it open up. And I thought, I'm satisfied now. And then I ate three more pieces. And I wished I hadn't, by the way. I didn't need it. But what we are to do, we're to be people who are satisfied with the Lord. Here's the last thing, and this is too large for me to go into great detail, but I'm going to mention it because Christ says His kingdom is not of this world. Jesus has a different kingdom. It has impact on the kingdoms of the world if it's inhabited by true believers in Christ and they live like Christ. Christ is kingdom not of this world. Therefore, those who seek Christ for something other than Christ Himself, those people are people whom Jesus runs away from. He flees to a place of solitude. He isolates himself from people who want him for what he can do for them. Now, he does great things for us. Make no mistake about it. But a mature follower of Christ seeks him for him and him alone. This will help you know if you're growing. Think about the things for which you pray. James says you do not have because you do not ask God. You ask and do not receive because you ask for the wrong motive that you may spend it on yourself. I know a lot of my prayers have gone unanswered. I was awakened in the early this morning, and I was thinking about a prayer that I've been praying for a long time and hasn't been answered. And I thought of that verse, Mike, and I, I sense the Spirit saying, you're asking it for your own pleasure. Ask it for my glory and see what I will do. Another thing that comes to mind when we think of Christ's kingdom, not of this world, is that political seasons are seasons of testing for those who Christ is Lord. Jesus fled political coronation. He knew what was on the minds of these people, and he didn't want to be coronated a king of this earth. He had a higher kingdom. And be careful. Be careful. Sometimes we almost deify the leaders of our political persuasion, whether it's Democrat or Republican or Libertarian or the Green Party or whatever. We tend to glorify those people. We put them in a place of God and we think they're going to be our saviors. Forget about it. It's better to trust in the Lord than to take refuge in princes is what the Bible says. Let's get it straight. If we're followers of Christ, let's... Follow Jesus. That does not mean we don't pray for our leaders. We do. The Bible teaches. But we don't put all our eggs in some human's basket. 
we put them in the hands of God. Last thing. Jesus fleeing to be alone by Himself teaches us to despise worldly honors. Forget about your worldly honors. They mean nothing. What we prefer is that we stand before the Lord someday and we receive the crown of righteousness because we have loved His appearing. Let's pray. Thank You, Lord, for this teaching. We ask Your Spirit to rivet it into our hearts and our minds and make us men and women like Christ as we minister to people at every level of their need, physical and spiritual. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we're a little late today. And what we're going